Welcome to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. And today I am here with Professor Alex Byrne of MIT. How are you doing, Alex? Good, Spencer. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm also here with my friend and co-author and podcast regular, Matt Lutz. How are you doing, Matt? Doing great, Spencer. Thanks for having me back. So a couple of, I guess, housekeeping items. One is that the last podcast I did, which was a joint podcast with Brain and Nevat, it was a video podcast, the only one I've ever done. And for that reason, I did not add the bumper music. And I think I'm just going to keep it off from now on. I think I might add some outro music, but I like just jumping right into it. And so there's not going to be any intro music for this episode and maybe not from here on out. It depends on the feedback I get. But unless I get a lot of negative feedback and people really want the intro music, I'm going to keep it off. Another thing is it's fortuitous that Matt is here because we want to announce the completion of the book, Is Morality Real? A Debate, which we've been working on really hard for two and a half years, and that will be available September 7th. We're going to you know, dot the last I's and cross the last T's over beer in the next several days, and it just feels like a tremendous accomplishment. And so... I wanted to, you know, go ahead and do a shameless plug. And Matt, anything you wanted to say about that? I mean, just what you said, uh, we put an extraordinary amount of work into this book, and uh, we think that it's really good. For anyone who's listening and uh, affiliated with a philosophy profession, this is intended as an introductory text for metaethics, structured as a debate between Spencer and I. I'm taking the for anti-realism side, and Spencer is the realist. Uh, It just covers all the basic things that you want to see covered in the intro text about what the realism-anti-realism debate is about, what different versions of realism and anti-realism are, and uh, Spencer's arguments for his uh, particular version of realism and my particular version of uh, skepticism and error theory. And we're both very proud of the, the last section of the book, where rather than do a traditional format where he writes a, here's what's wrong with Matt, and I write a, here's what's wrong with Spencer um, sort of rebuttal, Uh, we break it down issue by issue and do some back and forth on particular issues, which we think came out really well. And it's going to be a very good teaching aid for getting into sort of the nitty gritty on the foundational disagreements about realism and anti-realism. So uh, we are very proud of the book. We think that it is really good. It's going to be a really good teaching tool. And uh, even if you're not going to teach from it, we think you might learn something about metaethics from reading it. So it comes out September 7th, pre-order it now. Uh, you'll be glad you did. Thanks. And yeah, I'll just second what you said. I was reading the final part three and it was really your idea to organize it in that way. And I'm like, damn, this reads well, man, we really, we put in the extra mile and I think it shows. So that's all I've got to say about that. Also check out Matt's Substack. It's a very good Substack and doesn't have that many viewers, readers yet. How many are you up to? Double digits. Yeah. I don't know. Like a dozen. Yeah. Less if you cut, if you cut off my mom and dad. <laughs> that is humanbeing.substack.com. That is H-U-M-E-A-N-B-E-I-N-G.substack.com. And it's very good material on politics. I enjoy his takes and his commentary and all sorts of things. So, so check that out. Okay. That's more. Well, it's politics and philosophy. I talk about Kripke and Ron DeSantis. Oh yes, <laughs> good. I'll, I'll I'll sign up to your uh, to your substack. Oh, thank you, Alex. 
That's 13 right there. There you go. All right. I think we ought to be ready to jump right into it now. So there are a number of things I wanted to cover with you guys. So one was this article. I think, Alex, you tweeting about it might have been the first time I saw it. This In Defense of Merit and Science article that appeared in the most recent issue of the Journal of Controversial Ideas, along with this paper of yours on pronouns that we're also going to talk about. And I just wanted to get your reactions to it. So Matt and I already talked about this a few days ago and had a similar reaction. And so I'll just give you my reactions and then and then, and then we'll go to you, Alex. So my initial reaction was, I thought this article was really good in parts and then other parts left me sort of, I thought, I wish that were somewhat stronger. The article was really good in terms of making a presentation that something that serious is happening in science, like ideologically. You, you read just the list of all of these statements made by all of these scientific organizations, these anti-racist statements and you know, all this allocation of funds. And it's just the sheer quantity of it that is documented together in this article makes it clear something is going on. Maybe it isn't something bad, but definitely there is a real trend happening. It isn't a figment of anybody's imagination. So I thought that was a good thing that the article did, but I was dissatisfied with a lot of the philosophy of science up front. And so that's my initial take on it. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I, I basically agree with that. I mean, it's, it is interesting when scientists try to do philosophy of science. <laughs> I mean, it sometimes makes me think that, if only for a moment, that philosophy has some use after all. <laughs> um, I do think we're a little better at thinking about these things than than many scientists. So on the one hand, when they characterize science itself, in a way, they're sort of too tentative. So there's a lot of emphasis on, well, scientific truths are all provisional, which sounds as if, you know, every everything a scientist says has to have some qualification like, well, you know, probably or provisionally or any rate, given the evidence so far, or we expect this to be overturned in the future, but this is what we have now. And I mean, for a start, one would think just like naively that, I mean, isn't that a bit too cautious? I mean, surely the basic shape of the earth is like settled science, if anything is, you know, it is roughly a sphere and the heliocentric model of the solar system is not going away soon. And surely we can just say, you know, tables are composed of atoms without adding, like, provisionally. So there's, so there's that sort of obvious point. And then there's a somewhat more sophisticated point that if, if you said that everything is provisional, then it looks like what you've said itself should be just provisional. In, in which case, you shouldn't just assert it outright. You should add a provisionally in front. You know, provisionally, everything is, uh, all scientific claims are provisional. And then, of course, you can ask of that, is that provisional? And it looks like if everything really is provisional, then no one is entitled to make any flat-out assertions at all. So on the one hand, the characterization of science itself seems to be 
too weak. It's too tentative. Science really does produce knowledge and we can flatly assert various claims like the Earth is roughly a sphere and, uh, you know, dinosaurs existed millions of years ago. And then on the other hand, perhaps perhaps more importantly, I think the, the, the opposition is characterized rather unfairly as, you know, not believing in objective reality or just holding that there are competing narratives. I mean, the word objective, I think, in the preliminary philosophical bits of the paper is doing an awful lot of work. I don't really know what it means. Because, of course, you have to say that the opponents do not believe in objective reality. You have to insert objective there, because if you took it out, it sounds crazy. Like, you know, if the opponents don't believe in reality, of course they believe in <laughs> they believe in reality. I mean, the whole point of critical race theory is that, you know, social reality is permeated with structural racism. But then what exactly is the, the objective doing? And then similarly, when they talk about truth, it's, the opponents don't believe in objective truth. They do believe in objective truth. But what exactly is this contrast? I should just add here that there are 27 authors to this piece. So it was written by quite a lot of authors, most of whom, I think all of them, but Bogosian, non-philosophers, and several names that I respect, like Lee Jussum and oh, yeah, Ray Lowry. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent Yeah, uh, John yeah. McWhorter. Yeah, so. Terry Cohen. Yeah, yeah. So I like a lot of these authors and I think their hearts are in the right place. And I th I think I agree with their fundamental conclusions, but I, yeah, I, I see some problems here. Uh, Matt, do you have anything to add to what Alex was just saying? Well, yeah. I mean, so what they're, what they're doing is they're, they're regurgitating half remembered and half understood Karl Popper, like uh, a sort of layman's version of Karl Popper is the scientist's philosopher of science which in some ways is good. Karl Popper is a great and important philosopher of science, but in some ways is bad. There are many very notable objections to Popper. Popper's views are respected among contemporary philosophers of science, but I think it's safe to say certainly not universally accepted, quite far from it. And so it's, it's a bit odd to talk to a scientist about philosophy of science because they, you know, at first don't understand what there is to talk about, right? They're like, oh, we don't need philosophy. We're scientists. We're the, we're the hard-headed empiricists. We're just, you know, doing, doing our science. We don't need philosophy. And then you start asking these philosophy of science questions to them. Well, what do you think about this, right? What distinguishes science from non-science, for instance? And they go, oh, obvious. It's falsification, right? Well, that, that was Popper's answer. Right. And and similarly with what Alice was talking about, about how everything is provisional. Right. Again, that's Popper. Right. That's that's what Popper said. Right. There's no such thing as a theory that has been confirmed, much less amounts to knowledge. Right. Popper is very impressed by uh, Hume's arguments against the possibility of inductive reasoning and scientific reasoning is inductive reasoning broadly construed. So what Popper said is that we just have hypotheses that have not yet been falsified. Right. The test of whether or not a claim is scientific is whether or not it can be falsified. And the accepted scientific claims are just those claims which have not yet been falsified. 
But of course, there's an infinite number of theories that are consistent with the data. That's a famous theorem in the philosophy of science. So we can be reasonably certain that every theory will be refuted at some point in the future. So all we have now are theories which have not been refuted. So we, we accept them provisionally with the expectation that they will be refuted in the future, at which point we need to move to something else. Now, there's a lot to disagree with with that picture. I'm not going to do a full philosophy of science lecture on, on Popper and his philosophy right now. But that's that's sort of like some of the basic points about Popper. And so when I'm reading this paper, I'm just understanding them as regurgitating Popper, because that's what pretty much all scientists do when they're confronted with philosophy of science. They just sort of regurgitate Popper, which again, Popper's great, but like there's lots of problems with his view. So those problems then uh, affect, infect the subsequent work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. One of their main objections to the rival critical social justice epistemology, whatever it's called, is that their claims are not are not falsifiable. And of course, as you said, if you if you put it in Popper's way, it doesn't make science sound terribly impressive. I mean, all we can say about the hypothesis is that the Earth is roughly a sphere. Is that well, we haven't refuted it yet. So <laughs> that doesn't seem so good. Right. And this, of course, is one of the I mean, main objections. I mean, if all that's happened is we haven't refuted it yet, you know, why, why are we putting satellites in, in, into orbit on the assumption that the Earth is roughly a sphere? On page 12, they're objecting to the sort of loose language of decolonization. And then they say that this is rhetoric and, and has no truth value. And it's like, well, why can't you just say that it's false, right? Or that what's being said isn't justified, but they go for it has no truth value, which suggests there are all these sort of assumptions, philosophy of science assumptions lurking in the background, doing a lot of work here. Well, this goes back to an, another old pet peeve of mine, which is people taking this idea that there's a, a fundamental distinction between fact claims and opinion claims where fact claims are the source of things that can be true or false and opinion claims are uh, uh, something else, right? Incapable of being true or false or not capable of being objectively true or false. This is a different problem. This isn't half understood, half remembered popper. This is half understood, half remembered logical positivism. But somehow it made its way into the educational system and people are supposed to be able to tell the difference between fact claims and opinion claims. But I don't know any contemporary philosopher that thinks that there is a, a real difference between fact claims and opinion claims. And yet pretty much every educated non-philosopher thinks that there are. So once again, we've got people uncritically accepting some incoherent ideas that they, they were taught and then you know building their case on them, which is unfortunate because they've got good things to say, but they're building their case on some very, very poor philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that most of the authors, or probably all of the authors in, in, in practice, are, are not actual Popperians. I mean, after all, Jerry Coyne wrote a, a book called Why Evolution is True. It seems very unlikely that Coyne just thinks that Darwin's theory of evolution has not yet been refuted and that's the, or falsified, and that's the strongest claim we can make. What do you think, Alex, of the term liberal epistemology? I think it's interesting because they sort of have this contrast between liberal epistemology, which is the good epistemology, which is science, and I think it's identity-based epistemology. There's some helpful table somewhere. 
Oh, yeah, here we Identity are. Based, on page they're... nine. Liberal epistemology versus critical social, social justice. Also, epistemology. they also mentioned standpoint epistemology. On page yeah, nine. right. Identity-based ideologies. Yeah, another contrast. Okay. So yeah, and CSJ epistemology. There's a there's a table at the at the bottom of page nine. Critical social justice epistemology. So one thing that I think is notable about this way of setting it up is liberal is a political term, and so it seems to be conceding that epistemology is political. So if there are problems with liberalism as a political system, then presumably that would maybe reflect something bad about liberal epistemology. So it's sort of like it begins from within granting the point that epistemology is political, which is interesting. I might be willing to go along with that, but that is controversial. And one way they could go, one way they could have gone is to say that it's just a mistake to think that epistemology is entangled with political questions and political ideologies or what have you. But since it's liberal epistemology, it seems like they're they're jumping right in on the side of epistemology is political. And you might think that's granting their opponents like something important. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean the characterization of the opponents, the, the critical social justice epistemology crowd is uh, let's see, so one of these is Claims to truth are merely claims to power. So that that kind of automatically makes the critical social justice epistemology like political at its very heart. And to some extent, they seem to be conceding that in the terminology of, of liberal epistemology, that their, that their epistemology is also political in some ways, although maybe not quite as overtly political as the opponents. I mean, I, I, I mean, think that table just a little bit illustrates how surely many of the opponents are just not being charitably construed. I mean, is it really true that people who are against merit in science in the way the authors construe it refuse to admit corrections from outside or deny the legitimacy of other viewpoints or let alone think that claims to truth and merely claims to power, whatever that means exactly. I mean, if you look at that critical race theory reader edited by Delgado and a couple of others that they that they mention, it's not a central part of critical race theory, either that objective reality doesn't exist or that claims to truth are merely claims to power. I mean, the central doctrine is that society, or at least American society, is saturated in a sort of invisible, pernicious way with racism, top to bottom. I mean, it's sort of invisible, and it's there to promote the interests of white people, the, the favored race. Of course, you know, you can say all that and deny that claims to truth are merely claims to to power. And you can say, look, it's an empirical claim. Here's all the, here's all the evidence for it. I had that criticism, and I, and I talked with Lee Jossum about this earlier, and he encouraged me to look at the quote from Delgado in the supplementary materials that says this. Actually, is this Delgado and, and Stelfon, Stelfonic? Yes, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, well that, that's the one I that's the one I was okay. talking about. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the second person's name correctly. Stefanczyk, yeah. I think. For the critical race theorist, objective truth, like merit, does not exist, at least in social science and politics. In these realms, truth is a social construct created to suit the purposes of the dominant group. So, I mean, I think there's this dilemma in writing this kind of a paper, as I was telling this to Matt earlier, which is there's a dilemma between do you focus on the best possible version of the view or do you focus on the shit that people are actually saying and that is actually just sort of out there in the zeitgeist in the ether and yeah right 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 i mean i wonder but i wonder where that's from i haven't read the whole collection i mean i did i, I did look at the way delgado characterizes the basic tenets of of critical race theory and there's like there's nothing about the denial of objective truth in that anyway the and the the quote you gave is is qualified it's that there's no objective truth in like the social sciences or what was the other thing social sciences and something else at least in social science and politics so then it looks like he is conceding that well maybe in particle physics or evolutionary biology there is such a thing as objective truth or who knows what he means do you think you can get a, a kind of self refutation out of this because there is that that brief little part that says the first argument about about this is self refuting and i've been pondering whether whether this is this view is because if you're like a radical anti realist about everything that seems like maybe that is self refuting but if you have if it's constrained to the social sciences and politics, then it doesn't seem self-refuting, like just considered as a proposition. But there might still be some kind of tension there. Like, why are you even striving to be involved in the sciences if whatever the sciences produce is just going to be the reflection of the new dominant power group, you know, like what would be the value of it? So I think there might be something there that undercuts the motivation for the whole movement of why we're worried about diversifying science in the first place. I don't know, Matt, what do you think? I mean, there's there's sort of a lot that's going on here. There's a variety of critiques that can be made, right? So there's there are some more modest critiques that say that there is objective truth but we're not going to be able to get to objective truth unless we incorporate a variety of perspectives. And then there are more radical critiques, which say that there is no such thing as objective truth to begin with. It's all political narratives. It's all sort of power all the way down. And both of those perspectives sort of have a home in the broad umbrella of critical theories. And so I guess this goes back to what you're talking about to begin with. What exactly is our target here, right? The the more modest views or the more radical views? Because I think that there's something at least to um, the more modest views, more than something. There's quite a bit to the more modest critiques. It just becomes a problem when those start to shade into the more radical critiques that I think there gets to be huge problems with self-refutation and the like. But, you know, if it just comes to this basic idea that 
we need more diverse perspectives in order to expand our conceptions of what's possible. And this will then lead to better science by allowing us to think outside the box better and, and bust up the problems with the current paradigms. Sure. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds mostly unobjectionable, right? It's just the question, right, of how far that should be taken. And, you know, maybe this is a problem with the just category of critical theory or critical race theory in general. I mean, I know that lots of people have problems with that term because it's so vague. But one problem in particular is that it does seem to encompass both these modest critiques, which are, you know, often quite sensible, and lump them together with more radical critiques, which are incoherent, <laughs> often. I mean, the authors of the the paper themselves are very keen on a certain kind of diversity in science, and that they're also not completely against affirmative action either. They think in, in undergraduate admissions, some of that makes sense. And you could certainly imagine that there's some evidence that, you know, indigenous peoples, the Maori of New Zealand, for instance, have developed ways of knowing or insights into the universe or whatever that need to be incorporated into modern science and that we have we have just overlooked. It, it's not as if they can have some like a priori objection to these kinds of things. In the case of the Maori, which is something that they mention in the paper, I think Jerry Coyne was involved in protesting against the inclusion of Maori indigenous knowledge into some New Zealand science curriculum. In the case of the Maori, obviously the most straightforward objection is just to say, well, you know, if you look at like Maori indigenous indigenous knowledge or something, you know, we essentially have all that covered or it's all just like mythology. It doesn't need to be added to the science curriculum. And then in the case of a very strong form of affirmative action, say hiring faculty members for research positions, they could say, and indeed they do say, that, well, there's no evidence that this increases the quality of the overall science, and there are lots of reasons to think that it has bad effects, not least on the very people it's supposed to benefit. But these are just more humdrum, flat-footed, sort of less exciting claims than the sweeping sort of philosophical framework where it looks as if you're going to be able to derive the badness of that kind of affirmative action from sort of first principles or from liberal epistemology or something. So there's sort of three different levels of critique that, that could be leveled here. So is something that's called like a, the liberal critique, which is just saying, look, to the extent that science is populated by, you know, old white men or whatever. It excludes people who are not old white men on the basis of race and sex. That's bad, right? That is unjust discrimination. We should be against that, right? I think pretty much everybody agrees with that. Whether or not affirmative action is an acceptable or productive remedy, that's more controversial. But certainly not hiring someone for a job because they are a black woman would be bad. Then there's the sort of mid-level critique, which is to say, that excluding these people is bad, not just because exclusion is bad, but because they provide 
perspectives or they are more likely to develop theories which will be productive. And so by excluding these viewpoints from science, we actually harm the quality of science itself. And there are some famous examples where this is the case. Maybe the most famous example uh, is in in primatology, which had been a very uh, male-dominated discipline until women entered the discipline, which caused a paradigm shift in primatology, uh, and everybody now agrees for the better. In particular, it was around mating patterns. Men, when they were observing primates, sort of put themselves in the primate shoes, in particular in the in the example of the, the male primates. And they noticed some examples of primate societies where there was one man and, and very many uh, female primates. And they, they would describe this as a harem, right? I guess thinking of themselves as the as the alpha male gorilla or whatever, who was able to have all these ladies for, for himself. Whereas when women entered the field, they saw this in completely different terms. They said, what we're observing is the evolution of primate societies in a resource-intensive environment. And in a resource-intensive environment, the females of the primate troop don't need males to provide for them. There's so much abundance that they can make, they can take care of kids by themselves. And so what we're seeing here is the increased ability of female primates to choose what they want to do and to to use men merely as sperm donors and not be under their thumb, a very different sort of paradigm, which apparently um, has proven to be a more fruitful investigation into the structure of primate societies. So it's an example, again, of a a sort of mid-level critique, right? By introducing a woman's perspective into primatology, we were able to do better primatology. And then, of course, there's the third level, the more radical critique. And this, I think, is what's going on in New Zealand with the the Maori, which is why uh, Jerry Coyne is, is so up in arms about it, which is where they're saying that there is no objective truth. There's truth according to Western science, and there's truth according to Maori science. And these two kinds of science are equally valid and so both should be equally taught alongside one another in science classrooms. They're just different sciences. Neither one is better than the other. And so I think the first and the, the second, that, that base level, I think, is pretty much uncontroversial. That middle level is, is more controversial. But again, it gets folded in then with the more uh, radical critiques, right? Like the, the more radical stance. I think it's pretty easy to distinguish between having women in primatology will provide a perspective which will allow us to come up with more fruitful primatological theories, right? That's a different sort of perspective than Maori science and Western science are both sciences and both equally valid. And yet they both are sometimes included under this general banner of social justice epistemology which is a problem because there's there's a real important distinction between those two. One of those perspectives, I think, is much more defensible than the other. I think you're absolutely right that the primatology case is the best possible example of this kind of thing. But, of course, if you try and think of other examples, it becomes like a lot less plausible. I mean, suppose like there are no Asians doing theoretical physics, let's pretend. It seems pretty unlikely that if we now admit a whole bunch of Asians into the discipline of theoretical physics, then the field is going to undergo some paradigm shift because somehow there's a a unique Asian perspective on 
the subatomic structure of of matter. Didn't Niels Bohr get some inspiration from the Tao Te Ching and couldn't different uh, <laughs> okay. metaphysical background perspectives cause people to connect dots in different ways? I mean, I could imagine that being the case. You could, yeah, yeah, I guess you could. Yeah, it's still, I, I've often meant to like dig into that, to this primatology claim and see exactly what happened. It wouldn't surprise me if there's like, if it's more nuanced than it's, than it's sometimes made out to be. And of course, you, you know, if you're a sociologist and you're, you're interested in the like the dynamics of race in the inner city or something, then of course it would be good to have sociologists on your team with real life experience maybe racially diverse themselves but these are these are somewhat special cases i think it seems like i've heard the primatology example a lot of times which suggests that there's a small pool of examples that keep getting drawn on and i think that we can come up with other cases maybe but what i I don't like the the generalization to see more more representation of of marginalized groups make science better without also thinking like okay but also maybe more scientists with higher scores on tests you know going into graduate school would make better science like how would we trade these things off and I think that there tends to be a crude generalization from examples like that well, let's take it back to Popper for a second, or I guess more properly back to, to Reichenbach, because it's an idea that originally comes from Karl Reichenbach. This idea that there's a distinction between the context of justification and the context of discovery. Now, this is controversial whether or not there is this distinction, but the basic idea is that there's a difference between the process of coming up with a theory and the process of testing the theory. And the, the two are just distinct sorts of, of things. According to uh, Reichenbach and Popper, they have nothing to do with one another. They're completely distinct sorts of activities. Whereas, according to someone like Richard Boyd, there is no hard and fast distinction between the context of discovery and the, the context of justification. But it does seem that there's something to this idea that there's this difference, right? There's a difference between testing a theory and coming up with a theory. Now, what theories you come up with should be influenced by your your knowledge of past theory and past experiments, what's worked in the past. But, you know, when it comes to certain intractable or at least thus far unsolved scientific puzzles, you know, there's a lot of room for people to just come up with crazy out-of-the-box ideas, right? Well, what about this? What about that? What if we think of this way? Right? You mentioned Niels Bohr, right? Bohr was strongly influenced by by Kant. Einstein was strongly influenced by Hume, right? The, these sort of philosophical, metaphysical ideas can provide a spark of insight. Well, what about this? What if we try this? Which might then somehow lead to discovery, right? As Popper argues and, and Reichenbach, again, controversially, but I think there's something to this. Coming up with a theory is not a matter of, of pure logic or pure you know, following the evidence where it leads. And the whole point is that we're coming up with theories prior to having any conclusive evidence one way or the other, right? Just relying on on intuition, what seems fruitful, what seems like it could be right, what seems promising. And perhaps having different background, different cultural contexts, different metaphysical assumptions 
is the sort of thing that could cause you to be inspired in one way or another. So you you suggested earlier, Alex, that maybe you know having more Asians in theoretical physics wouldn't help. But maybe having more people in theoretical physics who are were raised as Taoists, raised, you know, confronting sort of the paradoxes and thinking in certain ways about contradictory nature of reality, maybe that might give better insights into into quantum mechanics or something. I mean, maybe not, but but that seems at least a, a live possibility worth taking seriously. Maybe I chose like the worst possible example. <laughs> there is a there is an old there is an old book by I think his name was Fritjof Capra called The Tao of Physics. Mm. It's kind of a popular physics book that tried to find some connection between yeah contemporary particle physics and Eastern Eastern religions. Could I say just to change the topic just slightly? You know, we've been. To, talking about some of the examples they give in the merit paper, which do seem to be alarming and threaten to undermine the entire scientific enterprise. But I don't think that's true of all of all their examples. So in uh, section six, they have exhibits of the intrusion of ideology into science and attacks on merit. And I was just looking at some of their examples, and one is Inorganic Chemistry, the journal Inorganic Chemistry, published an issue celebrating LGBTQIA PN plus inorganic chemists. And that piqued my interest because I'd actually never heard of the PN on the end of LGBTQIA. So I, any idea what PN are? Oh, uh, I, I would be speculating okay. and I'd make a fool of myself by doing so. So I'm going to abstain here. It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible not to make a fool of yourself on these things. Okay. Well, P is, it's a bit weird because I, I think it's it's polyamorous slash pansexual. That was going to be my guess. I was going to guess poly. Yeah, but you do not want to confuse being polyamorous with being pansexual. That's like a terrible mistake. Anyway, the N is is non-binary. Mm, of course. So I looked at this this article out in, in Organic Chemistry, a celebration of LGBTQIA PN plus inorganic chemists. And, of course, the, you know, the alphabet soup is... It's sort of ludicrous, I think, to lump all these wildly diverse groups of people together. But then, if you look at what it actually says, it basically consists of a whole bunch of sort of testimonies from LGBTQIAPN plus inorganic chemists. So, for example, there's Dr. Nicholas Chiappini who is gay from Princeton University, who wrote his like, thesis or something, was about proton-coupled electron transfer in organic synthesis. But anyway, so what, what's interesting is that almost all of these people who have written little paragraphs about their experiences are gay. There, there seem to be no, unfortunately, no pansexual inorganic chemists writing this thing. Maybe maybe there aren't any pansexual, or maybe there aren't any pansexual or polyamorous inorganic chemists. It doesn't really sound like the kind of discipline that would 
attract pansexuals. But so that's the first point. But the main, the main point is that all, all these people, all these gay people, all these gay inorganic chemists are saying, well, you know, it was like bad years ago, but now it's great. And I'm out and proud <laughs> as a gay inorganic chemist. And it's really, it's really great to be gay and an inorganic chemist. And well, I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of terrific news. But it, it isn't a sort of narrative of 24-7 oppression or anything like that. And there's certainly no hint that, you know, reality is not objective or that the, the pansexual or polyamorous inorganic chemists have some special uh, way of approaching inorganic chemistry. You know, of course, you can make, make fun of this thing, but it, it doesn't seem to really support the thesis of the paper that uh, some pernicious ideology is undermining science. Yes, that seems like a pretty anodyne example, although maybe what you could say to it is this, is that it's part of a, of a greater culture of emphasizing who's doing the science on the fact that they were gay, not what their discoveries were. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you could you could say that, but there isn't. Yeah, but there's a more sort of charitable way of, of reading it, where they're just saying, "Look, you know, not everyone in inorganic chemistry is cis and straight." And uh, let's let's give a shout out to those who are uh, uh, a different persuasion. So there's one. Let's see. Yeah, there's one person who. Set in her testimony, I think she identified as queer. Who knows what queer means? But she said something like, I can't find it now. She said something like, well, you know, in my lab, we even, even our chemistry is a little bit queer or something like that. And it was, like, it was clear, clearly intended to be a joke. But anyway, just again, just out of interest, I went to her lab webpage and I was sort of expecting, to, you know, it is after all Pride Month. I was expecting to see some rainbow banner or uh, pronouns or something like that. But there was nothing, nothing of that kind whatsoever. It was just like a perfectly straightforward lab page. And here's all the work in inorganic chemistry that we do. So I, I, I'm not convinced by, by all these examples, although certainly some of them are troubling. Yeah, so I, I want to pick up on this idea of, of charity again. I didn't chase that citation down the way that you did, Alex. That's great. Thank you. And yeah, I am worried about that. This does seem like a, a very uncharitable reading of the critical social justice literature. And I think I think charity is important. And, and this is one of the, the big problems I had with this paper is there's, there's a decided lack of charity. And charity is hard. Charity's hard. I remember, you know, when I was a graduate student at one point saying that the principle of charity is for cowards and historians. And at the time I meant it, uh, I've come around to uh, thinking that as, as witty a bon mod as that was, that's just a very flawed way of thinking because, because there's always a stupid version. There's always a stupid version to, to attack. And, and maybe it's worth mentioning the stupid version in passing if the stupid version has become popular and influential, which in this case, maybe not the case of the uh, uh, inorganic chemistry lab, but in, in some cases, there is a stupid version of, of things which has become popular. But, you know, I, I think it's incumbent upon any critics of critical social justice as serious thinkers to deal with the the best version of the uh, of the view. 
you know, just just for the the normal sorts of reasons. For one, you know, you're not going to be taken seriously by people who are advocates of the best version of you. Yes, yes, they, we are also irritated by the the people who say stupid things in our name. Yes, we agree those things are stupid. This doesn't touch the core of the view, the best version of the view, right? Um, you need to win over those people as well, uh, and you're not going to do that if you just beat up on on the stupid stuff. And of course, taking that the best version seriously, you might realize that. They're right about some things. Maybe they are, right? And you're never going to get to that point if you are just dealing with, with the stupidest version. You guys are both familiar with this point, but it's it's worth emphasizing. In this context, as in all contexts, charity is important. Dealing with the best version is important. And this is one of my frustrations with the paper, is that they, they did not seem overly concerned with making sure that they were confronting the most charitable version of the views that they were attacking. They were focusing on the popular and indefensible at the expense of a serious discussion of the less popular but more defensible. Yeah, although to be fair, on the other side, the reaction to the paper, at least on social media, was hardly charitable itself. Well, on social media, I mean, that's that's the dumb version, right? Social media is always the dumb version. Yeah, but so I do think it's true that, that there was not a lot of steel manning and stuff in this paper. But at the same time, there are certain things that if you really try to steel man it, you're going to end up attacking the wrong target. Like if you're concerned is what is actually being permeated in the zeitgeist. Like, for example, I had that one article and also reply on white privilege. And there are all sorts of things that people will say, oh, that's a straw man or that's nut picking or whatever, that like, no, you can find a lot of people saying it. Like the idea that all white people are guilty and should feel guilty is not something that no one has ever said. I mean, you can find like highly cited papers and books that say that and lots of public intellectuals saying that. So should we just never address it because that's the dumb version of the view? Do we just never say anything? in response to that because it's the dumb version of the well, view of course not but you know there's there's ways to do this right you you can distinguish right you can say there's multiple views within this general heading right this is this is standard work in philosophy right the, this term is used in multiple ways right sometimes people use critical social justice to talk about x sometimes they use the term critical social justice to talk about y we can disambiguate right there is critical social justice X and critical social justice Y. Here's the problems of critical social justice X. These are obvious. These are stupid views. Uh, we can dispense with them quickly. The more serious views are critical social justice Y, and that'll be my focus in this paper. Right? Like, like we know how to do that. We know how to write that. Um, and that's just that's just basic sort of philosophical academic chops. Drawing distinctions between distinct views. Um, attacking the different views on their own terms, right? Um, dispensing with the bad views quickly before moving on to more depth discussions of the more serious views. Uh, this this is just basic skills that all of us learned at graduate school. Uh, there's no there's no reason to set those aside in this context. I mean, uh, an example of straw manning on the other side, um, uh, which didn't come uh, from social media is that uh, editorial by the editor-in-chief of science, H. Holden Thorpe, It Matters Who Does Science, which was 
um, essentially, even though he didn't mention uh, the Journal of Controversial Ideas paper, I think that was linked to in the um, in the original uh, blog post. Yes, it was. Uh, in any event, it's clearly directed. It's clearly some kind of reply yeah, to it, them, it and to. it's just like total straw manning. It's amazing. It's like, um, you know, scientists should embrace their humanity rather than pretending that there are a bunch of automatons who instantly reach perfectly objective conclusions. Of course, it's, it's not the, the thesis of the controversial ideas paper at all. Yeah, so I, I like that you, you said this. Out. I, I did a little bit of digging myself. So, like, the one example um, uh, that uh, is is given in that, that editorial um, I, talks about Darwin, but the, the more contemporary example is this uh, more recently pulse oximeters that measure blood oxygen levels were found to be ineffective for dark skin because they were initially developed for white patients. These examples and countless more in between reveal how much work needs to be done to strengthen the scientific community and the public understanding of the process. So I looked that paper up. I looked that paper up and I found two interesting things about it. Interesting thing number one is that the fact that dark skin makes it harder to measure blood oxygen levels, this has been understood since the beginning. This is not new information. The uh, new paper was just trying to contribute to our understanding of structural racism, right? If we understand structural racism as is the steel man version of that that concept as being that panoply of factors, whatever it is, which results in inequalities between different racial groups, then perhaps this is part of that complicated mess, which is structural racism. Okay, fine, maybe. A second thing that I noticed about this paper is I looked at the authors, of this paper and every single one of the authors is one of the whitest people you've ever seen. So as an argument for diversifying science, it seems to fail on its own terms. I think not the lead article. Cause I did the same search. Dr. Oh, did you? Andreo Carly or something. Hold on. Now I got to dig it up. The lead study author, Dr. Leo Anthony Sally. He looks mixed race to me. I found I found his page. Um, I found a different paper. I found one by um, Gottlieb, Ziegler, and Morley. In any event, I I was thinking the same thing you were thinking. I was thinking this only supports the thesis if this was done by non and on whites. Okay, so Doctor Leo Anthony Selly. I think this. Yeah. Um, I think he's Asian, Southeast Asian. I don't know. I can't. I don't know. Uh, I may be wrong about this. Well, first of all, I'm sure I, I remember looking this up. Matt is right that from the very beginning in the 1980s, when pulse oximetry was developed, it was realized that it's less effective on people with, with darker skin. But I thought that I'm, I, I, I may be wrong about this. So Thorpe says, well, why are they less effective for dark skin? Well, it's because they were initially developed for white patients. But I I don't think that's that's right. I think there's just something about the way pulse oximetry works. It works by, you know, sending light to, I think, some infrared beam and some maybe visible light beam into the skin and then seeing what's reflected back and somehow the ratio to, of that, of the two reflected beams tells you something about the level of 
oxygenation in the blood, I thought the the very method itself lends itself to people with less melanin in their skin. So it's not a matter of sort of calibration. So oh, we we initially developed this for for white people. That's why it doesn't work. If only we'd calibrated it on black people, then everything would have been fine. Or people with with dark skin, darker skin, everything would be fine. I think there's just something in the method itself that makes it uh, less reliable the more melanin you have in in your skin. I'm not completely confident of that. But the the way the way he tells the story, anyway, looks like well, we are only interested in blood oxygen levels in white people. So of course we calibrated our machines just using them and then no surprise it turned out to be inaccurate in the case of people with dark skin well there are other examples which are more like that so another one of these sort of critiques that you you often see brought up alongside the the primatology example are are things like medical studies that are done solely on men rather than women because the researchers assumed that having a menstrual cycle would be a confounding variable in their experiments, and so they wanted to remove the confound by removing individuals with menstrual cycles. And so this leads to problems in a variety of ways. One, we might think that that assumption itself is sexist. Why think that a menstrual cycle is the deviant from the non-menstrual cycle norm rather than vice versa? But perhaps more pressingly, if you're not testing your drug on women, then perhaps there's going to be side effects that occur when you uh, test on women or it's going to be less effective or something on women. And that just won't get caught because you're you're not testing on women. So I, th- I thought that this was a poorly chosen example by Holden Thorpe here. But there are perhaps other examples which might do for making a similar sort of point. Yeah, although the funny thing is that in, in certain quarters so you know now the nih mandates including sex as a biological variable and you you, you might have thought for the reason that you just gave that this is an excellent idea because sometimes sex really matters in the development of drugs and who has side effects but people over in the gender sci lab at harvard are actually very much against the idea of including sex as a uh, as a biological variable and they're they're not on the side of the authors of the paper in the journal of controversial ideas. They're, they're, as it were, part of the opposition. I want to make one last point on this issue of what, the extent to which this article has the the uh, a defensive merit in science has this failing. Because I sort of think, Matt, that it doesn't steal man, but it also doesn't straw man. Because if you look at the totality, like maybe some of these examples are much less worrisome than the others, like the chemistry, LGBTQIA, et cetera, example. But some of these are, you look at this and think, was this prompted by the best version of this view? And they have this, what they call the smoking gun quote from two leading officers of the National Science Association. This is on page 15 where it says, uh, this is from McNutt, who's president, and Castillo Page, chief diversity and inclusion officer. This is like in a written statement about diversity. They both say, not so long ago, the NAS might have naively argued that its membership could not reflect the diversity of the American public it serves until universities fixed the leaky pipeline 
of too many women opting out of careers in scientific research almost before they begin, or until elementary and secondary schools started motivating more students of color to study STEM disciplines and prepared them for success in college and beyond. But in 2021, it is simply not acceptable to wait for bottom-up solutions. And the authors of the article say, this implies that membership in the academy should reflect an aspirational dream of proportional representation rather than the real demographics of the most meritorious scientists. I think that's a fair interpretation of the quote. Right. And I don't think that we could come up with a, a version of critical race theory that would not commit someone to watering down merit. Maybe, maybe. But that's not the sort of thing that says in 2021, we just can't wait. In 2021, we just can't wait for things further up the pipeline to be fixed. We have to act now. We have to have representation now. That is a desire for proportional representation trumping merit. And to be fair, this is another criticism of the article. They don't really make the case strong enough that they shouldn't do that, in my opinion. They even sort of gesture in the direction of wanting to retain some sort of affirmative action or suggesting it would be like a failure if merit-based science didn't result in greater like like demographic diversification of scientists and scientific institutions. So I think that is a weakness of the paper. But it does seem to me like the institutional stampede that the bulk of their examples point to does not suggest that like their target is the best philosophical view. It's a, it's a, a target of something that's in the culture that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And it seems like it's a different kind of task. I mean, that quote does actually bring out two very different ways of thinking about diversity. So the the quote says that the NAS membership needs to reflect the diversity of the American public. So that's a concern with underrepresented groups. So if you're X percent of the population, then you should be X percent of the National Academy of Sciences or X percent of the faculty. But if your concern with diversity is, well, let's say, Holden Thorpe's concern with diversity, namely that, well, if we have a bunch of bearded white men doing physics, this is uh, nowhere near as good as having uh, a racially diverse or racial, racially and gender diverse bunch of physicists, then it, it, I think that second way of thinking about diversity is actually in some tension with the, with the first way of thinking about diversity. So, so imagine you thought, okay, it's really important for you know, evolutionary biology, let's say that you have a diverse range of sexual orientations among the, among the biologists. And indeed, you could actually argue that, you know, it's, perhaps it's somewhat similar to the primatology case that, you know, if you have some like gay or polyamorous biologists, then they're more likely to spot certain sexual patterns among other primates than, you know, straight biologists. But if that was your argument, then you would want, surely you would want some critical mass of gay biologists. 
you know, surely you'd want at least 10% or like 20% of the biologists to be gay. I mean, like one in 50 or something like that will be nowhere near as good. But that means that you don't want your biologists to reflect the population as far as sexual orientation goes. Because if you just went by representation, since there are basically hardly any gay people, there would be hardly any gay biologists. You want to you want to make them overrepresented if your diversity concern is the, the Holden thought kind. Yeah, one of my problems with the sort of diversity arguments is just the arbitrariness of what sort of diversity we're aiming for, right? There's a standard list, right? You got your race, sex, gender identity, ability, yada, yada, right? The, the standard protected class. But I mean, not not to bring up the old issue of viewpoint diversity again, but like 40% of Americans identify as conservative and markedly less than 40% of academics are conservative. Now, most people are unconcerned by that and perhaps they're right to be unconcerned by that. But then that just raises the question, what are the kinds of diversity that we should be concerned with and what are the kinds of diversity that we shouldn't be concerned with? Right. Um, should we should we make sure that academic departments are proportional with percentage of people who prefer vanilla to prefer chocolate? Right. Well, like, no, of course, that's ridiculous. Right. So what are the kinds of diversity that matter and why do they matter? And there is frustratingly little attention paid to that question when it seems a very foundational question for this this whole enterprise of trying to promote diversity, right? Diversity of what and why. That that can't be that can't be swept under the rug as a, a minor detail to be worked out later. That's the foundation of the whole project. And yet there is very little attention paid to it. I mean, like sort of the best answer to that is, you know, some sort of idea which says that we should expect intellectual merit, for lack of a better word, to be equally distributed around the, the population. And so to the extent that we see disparities, then that is a indication of prejudice. But then, of course, again, of course, it's it's absurd to to try to take that too far, right? If we find that the percentage of of vanilla likers is disproportionate, the percentage of of left-handed people is disproportionate, the percentage of conservatives is disproportionate, right? Should we always take that as being evidence of discrimination, or just evidence of the fact that sometimes random factors are random? Matt's brought out very effectively why. Why talk of diversity is just like completely unhelpful. Just to say that, oh, yeah, we're, we're interested in diversity, or even if you say, well, we're interested in certain kinds of diversity is, is not to say anything useful whatsoever. I mean, the flip side of diversity is, is uniformity. And of course, we're interested in uniformity as well. I mean, if you're like running a, an inorganic chemistry lab, you want uniformity in basic competence with inorganic chemistry. You're not going to hire people whose expertise is in knitting or car repair or philosophy to, to work in your inorganic chemistry lab. You want uniformity with respect to competence in inorganic chemistry. And even when you start talking about viewpoint diversity or intellectual diversity, still that's not 
precise enough. I mean, of course, in the inorganic chemistry lab, you don't want intellectual diversity in the sense that, you know, you want some people who are really smart and some people who are like really not so smart. You don't want that kind of intellectual diversity. And as far as viewpoint diversity goes, you don't want like whack job, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. I mean, that would certainly increase your viewpoint diversity. So just these like general claims about how diversity is is good seem to me to be basically empty. I mean, you could equally well say uniformity is good. And then the question would be, well, yeah, but why uniform, uniform in what respects? And then, of course, as Matt pointed out, the same thing is true of diversity for the same reason. I want to turn this around too on the on the authors of the paper in defense of merit because this is one of my big objections to the paper as well, which is why do we care about merit, right? Why assume that merit is such a good thing? And I might say, well, it's obvious, right? Of course, merit is a good thing, right? Merit just means people who deserve it, right? But no, they give a descriptive definition of merit, right? They they don't give a normative definition of merit. They don't say by merit we mean people who deserve it. They give a, a weird, disjunctive, rambling, descriptive definition of merit, which like encompasses credentials and how many people you've mentored and what fields they've gone into after you have mentored them and so on and so forth. And maybe all of those things are good, but why think they're good? Right? There's a, there's a fundamental question here in the philosophy of science, right? What is science for? And once we've established what science is for, again, a highly controversial question in the philosophy of science, then there's a further question about what will effectively promote the ends of science. And that is itself an empirical question, partly philosophical, but primarily empirical, and again, highly controversial. And I just, you know, took the the pro-diversity people to task for being not sufficiently concerned with asking diversity of what and why do we care Similarly, I think that the authors of The Defense of Merit don't do enough to say, you know, what the goals of science are. And here's why merit, as defined by us, is an effective means to attain the goals of science as we have laid them out. Sure, they're transmitting a sort of vague received wisdom, but that vague received wisdom might well be wrong. And I think that's the the steel man version of the sort of critical social justice attack on merit is to say that when people talk about merit, they mean sort of traditional factors that have been used in, you know, grant awards and promotions and stuff like that. But we have no a priori reason to think that those are going to promote the end of science and perhaps some a posteriori reason to think that they don't. So that I think is a, is a sensible critique of the uh, defense of merit. And I think it's to the author's discredit that they don't take that seriously and try to address that. But I think from both sides, it just points to the more fundamental problem here, which is just a lack of serious thought about what science is and what the goals of science are and how to promote those goals. That's what we should be talking about, right? To the extent that we think that truth, objective truth, understanding reality is a good thing. Well, how do we do that? That's a really hard question. Um, And we should be adopting effective means to that end. But what the effective means that end are, that's, that's the hard question here. And everyone's just sort of assuming their side has the right answer, rather than doing the hard work. I agree that like, ideally, you would want a definition of what merit is. I'm not sure they need to do that in this paper. You know how hard it is to give a 
a conceptual analysis of anything, anyone on any kind of committee is going to have some idea of what hiring on the basis of merit is. Surely, like somebody who has 50 publications has more, you know, hiring on the basis of merit would, would say, hire that person over someone who has only one publication, but is their desirable race or something. If the social justice warriors are rejecting even that kind of a standard, you don't really need to get too fine-grained about how you define merit to see a problem or something like that. I think they could say that. Well, I mean, I think that there are still problems here, right? Because uh, I think that this concept of merit needs to be understood relative to the goals of the institution. And then it is a philosophical question what those goals ought to be and an empirical question about what will best advance those goals. I mean, if it's a defense of merit, then you should give a conception of what merit is and then give a principled defense of it, right? Here's what merit is. Here's why we care about it, because here's what the goals of science are. And here's why taking the factors into account that we have mentioned here are going to be an effective way of promoting that goal. And that seems to be like the minimum that I would ask for from a defense of merit as they define it in science. And and they don't give it to me. I mean, I think it's to some extent implicit in the, the opening couple of pages where they point out that science has transformed human welfare generally for the better. We owe vaccines to science and the eradication of smallpox and the dramatic drop in um, childhood mortality and increase in life expectancy and so on. And I don't see why they couldn't say that, look, what merit is whatever greases those wheels. If you have two groups of scientists who are trying to, you know, crack the COVID vaccine, then whatever merit is, the group with more merit has the greater chance of cracking the vaccine sooner. And then you might think that, okay, well, if that's merit, it's the thing that produces the better results in a shorter time, then, you know, that's plausibly measured by the conventional way of of ranking academics, publications, qualifications, awards, honors, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. I mean, so I, I agree with you, like, schematically, but you must admit that there's additional work to be done here, right? Like, there's a list of a, a achievements, right? Like cracking the, the COVID vaccine. We want things like that etc. and so forth. Well, well, how do we fill in that etc. and so forth? If we just understand these as being all good things, then we're giving a sort of normative, political, moral characterization of science. Science is that which brings good things. And surely racial diversity is a good thing. So we, we should, of course, trivially be pursuing racial diversity in science. I say, oh, that's not what I mean. I don't mean all good things. I mean, scientific good things. Well, okay, what are scientific good things, right? No, that, I that's think, that's yeah. an important question. I think they get themselves in a muddle on this point because they, in other parts, I'm pretty sure they mention like pursuit of, of truth and like what kind of truth, truth about the structure of physical reality or something. You could flesh that out. I don't think they need to do that here. But the examples they give are examples of things that are of practical use. They, examples of engineering and technology which makes it suggest that the, the aim they're most concerned about 
is the common good. And that, I think, leaves them open to this critique you're pressing. And even if you're talking about objective truth, I mean, this is controversial to the philosophy of science. Realists are going to say that the goal of science is to pursue objective truth. But there's a very, you know, respectable anti-realist tradition, which says that figuring out the truth is is beyond our ken, right? At least not a reasonable goal for science, right? Instead, we should be directed at trying to predict what we will experience in experiments and to develop technologies, prediction and control, right? The the sort of dual goals of the anti-realists, right? Rather than accurate representation. So, you know, they're just assuming realism. And I'm a realist, so I'm sympathetic. But, you know, again, they're making some assumptions here. Yeah, it would be nice if their case against the social justice crowd did not have to depend on taking sides in that dispute. I think I've said all I, I, I feel the need to say about this article. Either of you have anything else to add? It's an interesting article and it's worth reading. I'm glad it was published. I just wish that they had a philosopher of science as one of their co-authors. They have one philosopher, but Peter Boghossian, so far as I'm aware, doesn't have a background in philosophy of science. And and I think it shows. And so it's just regrettable that it feels like there's missed opportunities with this article because it is fundamentally an article in the philosophy of science um, written by 27 people, none of whom is a philosopher of science. I feel like it could have been better. Still good. I think the examples they give, that smoking gun quote, and that's that's significant, right? It's it's a, it's a good record of what's going on in science right now.